Tabby. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Bethany Northeast. Uh, if it's your first time here, uh, I'm Silas Sham, associate pastor, and I'm just glad that you're here. It was really good to be here with all of you. I was reflecting this past, uh, this past week. It has been about six months since I've been here, half a year. Woohoo, all right. That wasn't planned, so this is great. Um, but yeah, just it's such a privilege to share the word with uh, people who like, desire to learn so deeply. So, you know, every time I get the chance to speak to you, uh, just to be with you, thank you for your grace um, and the ways that you've opened yourselves up to the word of God. Um, so yeah, truly, I am grateful. Thank you so much. I was just reflecting on that this week. If we would, let's have a quick moment of prayer, and then we'll dive into the text. God, we love you, and we thank you for the space and the time uh, that we can share together, the ability to worship. And as we open ourselves up to you this morning, God, we pray that you would speak to us. And we pray that this spoken word would be faithful to your written word and lead us to the living word. Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit, be near to us and come quickly, God. We pray this in your name. Amen. So today is, no doubt, a a challenging text, right? A challenging text. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Throughout history, this passage of Scripture has perplexed people, it's confounded people, it's confronted people. Everyone from the church fathers like Origen to Queen Elizabeth, the Dutch Reformed Church, loyalists during the American Revolution, there have been and there has been a temptation for everyone, Christian or non-Christian, to make this text useful, right? To make it useful. We're tempted to read it and use it as we see fit, right, to, to make use out of this text. So in South Africa, this was a text that was often used by the Dutch Reformed Church to support apartheid. Right? Or for loyalists, this was a way to divinely sanction submission to the crown. This was a way to do it. They used this passage. For Americans in the slaveholding South, to anyone who wanted to appeal to a higher power, In order to support a political or a governmental order, Romans 13, 1 through 7 has probably been used. The history of interpretation is sobering, and it's it's pretty checkered, right? It's, It's a challenging text, and it's a challenging read. So what do I mean by this? Depending on where you land politically, the way that you read this passage, this passage of Scripture, it might change... Every election cycle. So, disclaimer, I'm Canadian. I can't vote, okay? Just throwing it out there. But when Obama was in office, some of us in this room might have appealed to this text to say, look, God says we are supposed to obey authorities. We are supposed to submit to authorities because Paul tells us that God has put them there. So obey the law. Meanwhile, if you were opposed to the appointment of Obama, perhaps you would say, um, 
not so much on this text. I'm going to focus not on Romans 13. I'm going to focus on Acts 5, right? And that text emphasizes that we are supposed to obey God over and above all other authorities, right? Romans 13, Acts 5. So now that Trump is in office, I suspect that perhaps the tables might have turned for some, right? Democrat Christians are now more likely to appeal to Acts 5 as a text of precedence over Romans 13, right? Obey, obey this person. And well, Republican Christians are saying, no, we need to take Romans 13. The authorities are there for our good. Romans 13 over Acts 5. So indeed, just seven months ago, when he was attorney general, Jeff Sessions He used this contrast precisely. He embodied this contrast precisely when he said, and I quote about Trump's um, immigration policy and the separation of families, he said, I would cite to you the Apostle Paul in his clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the government because God has ordained the government for his purposes. End quote. I wonder, I wonder if Sessions and his supporters would argue for the obedience of the laws of the government in light of the very recent, this past week, Reproductive Health Act, which changes New York's law to permit abortions after 24 weeks in cases where a woman's life or health would be threatened by continuing the pregnancy. My assumption is that this line of thought, which prioritizes Romans 13 when it comes to immigration, would change when it comes to abortion to prioritize Acts 5. Right? We have these two different ways of interacting with the text. And opponents, opponents of Jeff Session, perhaps they might flip the way that those texts are prioritized when it is convenient to make different political claims. Is everyone okay? Yeah. (laughs) Came out with fire. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Have you ever found yourself wrestling with this dilemma, right? What do we do with this? Like, what are we supposed to do here? How can we read this text faithfully? Like, do we ignore it? Do we throw it out? Do we read it and follow it dogmatically? How are we supposed to read this text? This morning, join me as we look at one way that reimagines Romans 13, 1 through 7, by helping us to first understand who this text is written to. It's really important. Who this text is written to. Once we understand what is going on around Paul as he's writing this, we might have some greater clarity around why this passage matters and ultimately see that Paul's argument has direct application for us today. Even if, even if the history of how this text has been used in the past, both recent and ancient past, is deplorable. Right? So this is what we're going to do today. Point one, if you're in your bulletins, what is going on here? Right? What is going on? Journey with, journey with me for a moment to Rome. It's the epicenter, the power seat of the ancient world. Rome, 54 AD, and Emperor, uh, Emperor Nero has just come into power, okay? So a couple years before, 
49 AD, Emperor Claudius expels all of the Jews and Jewish Christians from Rome to leave. He just sends them away. They're expelled from Rome. He issues what's called the Edict of Claudius. But now, Nero has granted clemency to all the Jews. And all the Jews who were previously expelled are now allowed to come back to Rome. Jews and Jewish Christians. So Nero's in power. People are coming back. As these refugees who were forcibly removed are now in the process of returning back to Rome, conflict has begun to rise up between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Right? Gentile Christians have been there all through. They never had to leave. Jewish Christians are now returning. So some of the customs, some of the practices, some of the interpretations and the applications of Torah that Gentile Christians have ignored from the Jewish Christian perspective have really upset the Jewish Christians, right? In the Jewish, from the Jewish Christian perspective, in their mind, Gentile Christians are not being devout enough. They're being way too lax in their expression of faith. They are not following Torah. On the other hand, Gentile Christians, from their perspective, their predominant opinion is, why should we follow any of the customs from the Jewish Christians? Why should we do that? I mean, the fact they were expelled, doesn't that show that God's favor is now on us? In fact, we are God's people now. Shouldn't we hold the Jews responsible for Jesus' death in the first place? This is the contrast. This is the context. This is the environment, the backdrop that Paul is writing Romans in. So can you imagine? Can you imagine the divide? Can you picture it? Each group is arguing that their way of practicing Christianity is the way to do it. And in response to this, Paul writes to Rome, a church that he has not actually physically visited ever, not yet, and he writes to them to sort out the conflict. Clearly, this has nothing, uh, no contrast or no connections to our world right now. We don't have problems like this. We don't have trouble resolving conflicts in a civil way. We don't have that, right? If Paul were alive today, he wouldn't need to write a letter of critique to us, right? So when we're reading this book, as we work our way through Paul's argument and get to Romans 13, it's important to recognize who this is written to. Romans 13, just like Romans 12, is written to the Gentile Christians in Rome. They were being criticized by returning Jewish refugee Christians for not practicing Christianity properly. And in response to these claims, Gentile Christians were responding by mistreating Jewish Christians so severely that Paul feels like he needed to step into this conflict and address it head on. So specifically, our passage that we read today, these seven verses, 13, 1 to 7, is part of a bigger critique concerning Gentile Christians and their conduct towards Jewish Christians in light of their return to Rome. This, again, is the context. Is everyone tracking? So, look at chapter 12. Paul starts. 
I appeal to all of you, to y'all, by the mercies of God to present your bodies, plural, all of your bodies, as a living sacrifice. One sacrifice, not individual sacrifices. One sacrifice that is to be holy and acceptable to God, which is all of your worship, y'all's worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Conformed and transformed are plural verbs there. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, individual mind. That by testing, y'all may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. This is how Paul starts his critique. Paul starts with a radical call for unity in the body of Christ. Unity in the church. And he goes as far as to say, in 12 verse 5, So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. All through 12, there is this call to be united, not just to be uniform. Remember, he's talking to a context where there's different expressions of Christianity happening, not just to be uniform, all the same. Paul highlights how people might have different gifts within the church and tells everyone, this is a good thing. So he goes into that section, you know, if you're gifted for this, do this. If you're this, do this. Paul isn't advocating for uniformity. He's advocating for unity that can bind people with drastic differences together for the sake of the Roman Christian church's witness, for the sake of the community's witness. He's advocating for unity that can bind people with drastic differences, together for the sake of the Roman Christian community's witness. And this is why Paul then gets into the second half of chapter 12, and he finishes by highlighting the marks of a Christian. If you have a ESV, NIV, you might have the subheading added in, the marks of a true Christian. Here, Paul tells us what a Christian should look like. Genuine love, abhor evil, rejoice in happiness, patient in tribulation, constant in prayer. All these things, right? Show hospitality. The list goes on. He goes through a whole list. Are we tracking the flow of Paul's argument? Do we understand that Paul here, what he's trying to do, he, what he's trying to uh, like foster in the community? This is the context he's talking to. This is the environment. And it's important for us to grasp this to understand what he says next. To our passage today, chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the government and the, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. I don't often like to do this because it's not always helpful in the flow of a sermon. Uh, a lecture is a little different, but does everyone see the word Subject. Be subject. In Greek, this word is written in the middle voice. Any Greek scholars? Anyone? If you are, you know why this is so important. This is written in the middle voice. In English, we have two voices, two ways to tell how the action of a verb relates to the subject in a sentence. Active voice, passive voice. Does, does this ring a bell? 
Okay? So if I were to say, um, Abby bought a dog, right? Or uh, Justin ate barbecue. This is active voice, right? Abby is doing the acting. Justin is the subject, and they are acting upon something. Barbecue, okay? On the flip side, if I said, the dog was bought by Abby, or barbecue was eaten by Justin, this is the passive voice. The emphasis is on the dog and the barbecue as they're being acted upon by Justin and Abby. Active, passive voice. Simple enough. In English, we have two voices, active and passive. In Greek... There are three voices, active, passive, and a third one called the middle voice. We just don't have a construction for it in English. But in Greek, we have the middle voice. And all this says in, the, in this voice, the Greeks use this when a subject is doing the acting with reference to themselves. So what does this mean? They're doing the acting with reference to themselves. Well, it would, we'd say something like, Abby bought a dog for herself, right? Or the barbecue was eaten by Justin himself. This is called the middle voice. Good? Okay. I know we're moving quickly. Thanks for the grammar lesson, Silas. Why does this matter? Well, it matters precisely because we almost always read, let every person be subject to the governing authorities in the passive voice. Every person. You and I are being acted upon. We receive the action from the governing authorities. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. But be subject is in the middle voice. And this is huge. It's a big deal because it means that when we read this verse, it should read, let every person subject themselves to the subjection of the governing authorities. Let every person subject themselves to the subjection of the governing authorities. So let every person subject themselves, act upon themselves, use your own agency, your own individual agency to subject yourselves to the subjection of the governing authorities. Think back to how Jeff Sessions was reading this verse. Contrary to how this verse is often read as a call for each one of us to fall in line, to subject, to submit, to obey, to acknowledge the authority of the governing authorities so that they reign over us, this verse is actually saying that we should subject ourselves, we take control of ourselves to subject ourselves to the subjection of the governing authorities. Exercise your agency and choose to subject yourself to the governing authorities. So this isn't about governing authorities exercising power over us. Paul's call is for the Gentile Christians, for us, to exercise our own power on ourselves. And in doing that, in our choices, we are to be subject to the subjection. That's a lot of subjects and subjection. We'll, clar- we'll clarify, okay? Silas, so what? Who cares about this little tweak to the verse? Two words added. Right? What difference does this make? So what? Remember the context. Nero, 
Rome, the governing authorities, they have treated the Jews well. Rome has treated them well. By the hand of Rome, Jewish Christians have been able to return back to Rome. And Nero has granted full clemency to them in contrast to Claudius who came before. Right? Rome has treated Jewish Christians well. But upon their return, Gentile Christians have not treated Jewish Christians well. And it is this, this attitude, right? this way of being, this action from the Gentile Christians that Paul is addressing here. This is what he's talking about. This is Paul's critique to the Gentile Christians starting in chapter 12. Imagine I'm Paul, okay? Paul. You say you are Christians, but look at how you're treating the returning Jewish Christians. Don't you know that you are one body, that you belong to each other, that you don't have to all do things exactly the same? You can be different from each other and still be unified in Christ. So you, Gentile Christians, let your witness bear the marks of a true Christian. 1221, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Gentile Christians, you are compromising your witness. If y'all can't figure out how to treat Jewish Christians well, if y'all can't figure out how to treat your refugee brothers and sisters in Christ well, subject yourself to the subjection of Rome. Submit yourself to the authority of Rome. They have treated your brothers and sisters better than you have. They're not perfect, far from it, but they have acted better than you, which isn't so much a statement about Rome. It's not about that. This is an indictment on you. Gentile Christians, Rome will have their day of judgment. But as for you, Subject yourselves to the subjection of Rome because you've lost the plot so badly. You failed so poorly that Rome is treating your Jewish family members better than you are. Your conduct has been so bad that it's better for you and your Christian witness, better for your Christian witness, if you just obeyed the rules of Rome. So pay your taxes. Give your revenue. Respect and honor the people and commands of Rome. Rome. At least, at least, that would be better for everyone than the way that y'all are currently acting. Do you get it? Do we get it? Do we get what Paul is saying? Can you hear the irony in Paul's words? Can you hear the irony? Gentile Christians are treating Jewish Christians poorly, partly because Gentile Christians argue that the Jews are responsible for the death of Christ. And then Paul comes in, he writes a letter, comes in, and he says, hey, Gentile Christians, your conduct and witness is so bad right now in how y'all are treating Jewish Christians That the Roman Empire, the very hand that performs the execution of Jesus, is being better to the Jews than you are. Romans 13, 1 through 7, 
is an eviscerating, scathing critique of the Gentile Christian conduct. So this is what this passage is not. It is not a text that is meant to give government structures a blank ethical check. It's not that. It is not meant to be used by authorities to command absolute obedience. It's not that. Notice, this isn't even really an endorsement of Rome. Right? Paul doesn't praise Rome at all here. In fact, in 64 AD, Nero will blame the Christians for starting the great fire of Rome and initiate one of the worst eras of Christian persecution the world has ever seen. Paul will actually be beheaded by Nero for breaking the law. So no, any reading of this text that is meant to cement governmental rule over and above anyone else, any person, any people group, is simply wrong. It is a misreading of Paul's argument, and it's antithetical to the gospel. This text is not about Rome. It's not about Nero. It's not about the government. It's not about lawfulness. It is about Christian conduct. And it's a critique of the church's failure to see others as image bearers of God. And it is a prophetic word of judgment that is condemning the apathic, the unconcerned, ambivalent, antagonistic actions of the church. So we have covered a lot of ground. Some hard work today, okay? Absolutely necessary work if we're going to understand the trajectory of Paul's argument, what his words actually mean. You can't do it any other way. You might be thinking, that was enlightening. That was convicting. That was confusing. Hopefully not. (laughs) I own that it could be. If you've made it this far, we're on our descent, okay? We have two more things to look at that can really help us grasp what Paul is trying to say to us this morning. Two verses before our passage, Paul says, If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on your enemy's head. Do not overcome evil, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The way we read this text is revealing of what is in our hearts. We read this, we see the verses above this about vengeance being God's and God will repay. We see the words, but leave it to the wrath of God. And we immediately think that we know what's going on. Who here has ever heard or read the verse uh, about giving your enemy food to drink and you think that this is a way to bring shame or dishonor onto someone? Like shame them into being good. We've all heard this before. Kill them with kindness. But the whole concept kind of misses the point. This isn't about killing anyone. It's not about trying to figure out whether or not your killing of someone is kind or malicious. That's not the point. If the aim of your intention is to kill anyone at all, 
Who cares if you're doing it kindly or maliciously? They're still dead. Right? No, you see, Paul is telling the Gentile Christians, Paul is telling us today that when we give our food to enemies or we give enemies something to drink, we're heaping burning coals on their head and reigniting the embers of God's image and God's spirit that have been quenched in their lives because of sin. We are reigniting the embers of God's image that have been quenched because of sin. We are creating space for God to reignite the flame. And we are joining with God, participating with God, serving as the kindling for God's refining fire. Through our actions, God is able to work so that people will know who they have been created to be. How we respond to our enemies is nothing less than a test of our allegiance. Is Jesus Lord or is Caesar Lord? Is Jesus Lord or is Trump Lord? Is Caesar Lord or is Jesus Lord or is Obama Lord? Right? Who is Lord of your life? Who is Lord over your life? We don't serve our enemies to force God to avenge any wrongs that we have done or suffered. (coughs) We don't serve our enemies with the intention of deferring revenge to a God who is able to punish more severely than we can, even though I think we tend to read this verse in that way. No, we serve our enemies because in doing so, we are showing our enemies a different way of being. We are embodying for our enemies what true humanity looks like, what being made in the image of God actually looks like. We serve our enemies because as Christians, we know that were it not for grace, the light of the image of God in our lives would be snuffed out. And so we don't boast. And Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. Last thing. Romans 13.10. We'll look at this more next week. But the verse simply says, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. These are the verses that sandwich our passage today. They both serve as the foundation and the cap for a challenging passage about governing authorities and submission. Paul's call for the Gentile Christians to subject themselves to the subjection of Rome's authority is not about the government at all. Simone Weil would say, what is going through the text, right? What does this text wish to say? What might it contribute to our understanding of the world and the world's workings. This morning, 
we've tried to learn the trajectory of Paul's words, what he's really saying. We've tried to let the scriptures read us, right? To allow the word to enliven the word, to encounter the one the Bible points to through the words of Romans. We have seen that this text is a critique of how Gentile Christians were treating Jewish Christians in Rome. So now what? If you still have room in your bulletin, now what? You could probably fill up a couple. There's a lot. As we land the plane, how has your view of Romans 13, 1 through 7, changed now that we've gone through it? If you read this passage without first the intention of overcoming evil with good, or if you read this passage and approach lawfulness without understanding that for Paul, love is the fulfilling of the law, you will fundamentally misinterpret the words, the nature, and the intent of Paul. Whenever we read the Bible, we need to be sensitive to the trajectories of Scripture, just as we are sensitive to the words of Scripture. So as we close, typically, here at Bethany, we try to be pretty directive in giving you handles to hold in response to a sermon. So sometimes it's a call to action during the upcoming week. Sometimes it's a directed prompt or response in prayer. Sometimes we encourage you to journal or reflect in a different way, respond to the message. These are all great things, right? And if you feel led by God to do any of those things, respond in any of those ways, obey the Lord. I don't know how God has been working in every one of our lives here. But I trust that God has been working. God is here for you. God is here with you. God is working in our midst. And God wants to make you whole. But let me get also really real with you. I finished writing this sermon yesterday at 2 p.m. And then Abs and I went for a walk, tried to go get coffee. The place was full and just walked home. Um, And then I was feeling really, really good. So drove to do some errands. And I was running through the sermon in my head as I was driving down I-5. I was feeling like, man, I'm excited for tomorrow. Like, we cover a lot of content, subversive, it's kind of cool. Really feel like I have something good to say here. When I kind of felt a gut check as I was driving home. And I felt like God say, God say to me, Silas, this is good work. But where is the risk? And I'm thinking in my head, where's the risk? I'm preaching Romans 13. Get out of here with your where's the risk, God. <laughs> this is risky. And then I realized I had missed the point. I have it written down right here. This was what my final question was going to be. 
How might God be speaking to you about the ways that you've held your political opinions, theological convictions, and social positions? I think it's a good question. It's a fair question. Reflect on that at some point, but not right now. (laughs) In light of the critique, right? In light of the critique that Paul is giving to a corporate body that calls themselves the church, in light of how we learn that Paul is addressing a community of believers who have failed in their witness, I can't let this moment go without asking us, Bethany, to consider this question. If Paul were here today, what might he have to say to us as a community? And what would he think about our witness? If Paul were here today, what might he have to say to us as a community? And what would he think about our witness? What would he say? Would he commend us? Would he congratulate us? Would he say, great job, you're at the forefront of something great? Would he say, keep working? You're right where God wants you to be. Would he say, hey, Bethany, how about you let the community, the community take the lead on these things? How about you step away and subject yourselves to the way the government is taking care of the city? It'd be better for everyone if you weren't involved, if you weren't really involved. I don't know how to answer this question. I'm still trying to figure things out. I've been here six months. Most of you have been here longer than I have. Many of you know the Bethany story the Seattle story, the Lake City story, wherever you live, you know the story better than I do because you've spent 20 years, 15, 10, 5 years living it. You tell me. Does Lake City know that we exist? Do the people in our community know that we're here? Is our witness worthy of Christ? If Paul were here today, what might he have to say to us as a community? And what would he think about our witness? Specifically, when it comes to issues of race, I don't know exactly what he would say. I really don't. In some ways, culture seems to be so far ahead of us in the game. I own, I've only been here six months, so I don't want to assume too much But many of the ways we have talked about race since I've been at Bethany, completely vulnerable, is predominantly from a sociological perspective. And now hear me, I'm there, right? I can hang with the sociological crowd and talk about race in that way. But we're a church, y'all. Racism is sin. We need to be able to articulate why racial reconciliation matters, and we need to be able to do it from a theological perspective that's in conversation with all the other ways the world around us is talking about race. In conversation. Maybe this is too close to home right now. 
right? I'm not trying to guilt trip or coerce anyone, so please do not mishear me. Do not mishear me. The event with Daniel Hill is going to be great tomorrow, talking about racial reconciliation, why it matters, how we can participate. This is great. But Bethany, specifically Bethany Northeast, and I'm preaching to myself before anyone else here. I'm, I'm preaching to me. If all we do is play it safe, come to church on Sunday, sing three songs, 30-second prayer, hear a message, two more songs, go home. Straight up, God will tell us, you folks at Bethany Northeast, you folks should stick to doing church. It's better for everyone involved. It's better for the community, for the city, if you keep pretending like Sunday is the only thing that matters. What is God saying? What is he birthing here among us? Like the Gentile Christians that Paul was calling out, God is speaking to us this morning. He is speaking. If Paul were here today, what might we have, what might he have to say to us as a community? And what would we think, what would he think about our witness? If the band could come. I recognize that this is a hard word. It is a challenging word. Just like the text has been a challenging text to travel through. And I don't have the answers for all of us about, here's our deliverable, here's our ABC, here's our action step. I don't necessarily have all of that right now. I'm a three on the Enneagram. It's really hard for me to say that. If, if, yeah. But yeah, here we are, right? Like, we're trying to sort things out and figure out how to live faithfully. I guess I don't have anything else on the page. The only thing I can say is join with us and contribute in ways that shape how this church can meet the needs of the people around us. I don't know all the needs of the city around us. But let's join together in a way that allows us to create action and allows us to live in unity in ways that extend Christ to the world around us. If we don't do things like this, if we just come on the Sunday thing, why does this matter? Genuine question, right? We need to think about that. So we're going to respond with a time in prayer and reflection Again, if you have felt like I'm coming too hard, guilt trip kind of thing, I'm sorry for that. I apologize that you're feeling that way. Um, But let's obey the Lord. Let's hear how God is speaking to us and spend some time in prayer reflecting, and then we'll sing.